Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank today's episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio and all that they do for multiple myeloma patients. Now, before we get started with the show, I'd like to tell you a program you'll be seeing more on in the next few weeks. We call it Muscles for Myeloma. Now, at ASH, I heard many doctors saying they were going to start putting patients into treatment categories like fit, unfit, and frail when they were making treatment decisions rather than basing those decisions on age. One doctor used the example that an 85-year-old had a transplant because he was in such great physical condition and he did just fine with it. Because these therapies can be hard on our bodies, we need to be fit enough to handle them and because getting them could give us long-term remissions and longer life. So everyone is different. I have friends who are coming out of transplant, um, going into transplant, some are on maintenance therapy, and everyone is at a different level of what they could possibly do. But Muscles for Myeloma will be a fitness challenge based on your own personal goals, and who doesn't need that right after the holidays? So we'll be sharing more in the next few days on that, but start thinking about how you can get moving and then think about others you'd like to invite to join you. Now on to our show um, which is also, which is about a new and interesting drug, and we welcome Dr. Paul Shami of the Huntsman Cancer Institute. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shami. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Well, let me introduce you before we get started, and then we'll start in with our questions for you. Um, Dr. Paul Shami is leader of the Acute Leukemia Program at Huntsman Cancer Institute of the University of Utah and member and clinical investigator at Huntsman Cancer. Dr. Shami is on the Clinical Cancer Investigation Committee, the Academic Senate and Faculty Review Committee at the University of Utah in the Department of Internal Medicine. He's also founder and chief medical officer of JSK Therapeutics. He reviews publications including leukemia, blood, clinical cancer research, clinical and laboratory medicine, leukemia and lymphoma, Journal of Pharmacy and Pharmacology, the Journal of the NCI Editor, and Leukemia Research and Treatment, just to name a few. Dr. Shami has received the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Translational Research Award, the Rapid Access to Intervention Development NCI Award, and the Chairman Citation for Outstanding Service in the Fight Against Blood Cancers from the LLS. Dr. Shami complete, completed his education in Lebanon and his postgraduate work at Duke University. So again, Dr. Shami, we really welcome you to the show today. And as I understand it, you are working on a brand new uh, type of therapy in a totally different class from something that exists today. So maybe you want to give us just a little bit of background on the product and how you discovered this new treatment. Uh, Sure. Actually, this is 
turning out to be a really nice uh, Utah story. Um, there is this molecule called nitric oxide that we all make in our bodies, and it has multiple different functions, uh, including uh, 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 function where certain types of immune cells use nitric oxide to to attack, uh, uh, you know, microbes or tumor cells, and that pathway of the immune effect of nitric oxide was uh, initially described uh, here at the University of Utah by Dr. John Hibbs, um, and uh, I was uh, fortunate to train at Duke under Dr. Bryce Weinberg, who uh, had trained here with, with, with John Hibbs. And the way I, I got into this um, was through initial work I did as a trainee in the Weinberg lab at Duke. And <clears throat> what we looked at is the effect of nitric oxide on uh, acute myeloid leukemia cells. And uh, we showed that AML cells are very sensitive to the effect of nitric oxide. And so the uh, the problem with developing these observations into a therapy is that nitric oxide <clears throat> has uh, so many different effects uh, in the body that uh, it needs to be targeted to the tumor cells, otherwise uh, it would be uh, too toxic to, to try to um, deliver it in an indiscriminate fashion. And so after I moved to the University of Utah, I was again fortunate to be able to establish a collaboration with uh, a team of really wonderful chemists at the National Cancer Institute led by Dr. Larry Kiefer. And uh, in, 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 in Dr. Kiefer's group, uh, Dr. Joe Saavedra uh, was uh, synthesizing a whole family of, uh, of, of drugs that, uh, would, that were designed to, to try to target the nitric oxide to the tumor cells. And so... Uh, the chemists uh, made uh, uh, a whole series of these compounds, and each one of those was actually engineered in a specific fashion to be able to enhance um, the delivery to tumor cells. And they sent the compounds to us, and we screened them in my lab. And we, out of that screen, we uh, identified this one compound that turned out to be the most active in uh, against uh, acute myeloid leukemia. And the compound is called JSK, and the letters stand for the initials of Joe Saavedra, who synthesized the compound, and it was compound number K of the series. Um, since then, uh, we have, uh, again, entered into collaborations with different groups, and uh, 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 through their work, we have uh, found that JSK is active against multiple different cancers. Now, as far as multiple myeloma is concerned, uh, a few years ago, Dr. Ken Anderson from Dana-Farber, uh, essentially one of the giants of the field, was visiting us as a visiting professor here, and uh, I talked with him about JSK, and he uh, showed a lot of interest in it, so we sent him the drug, and uh, they did uh, essentially most of the initial work on on myeloma in his lab, 
the time he had uh, a fellow working in his lab, uh, Dr. Taniel Kiziltepe, and she she basically did uh, most of the initial work that showed the activity of uh, of JSK against myeloma, and uh, and so that's how how we 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 di di discovered the the molecule. So it went from an initial biologic observation uh, to actually very clever chemistry from the team of chemists at the NCI to uh, identifying the lead uh, in my lab by screening it against leukemia and then for myeloma uh, showing the activity in in Dr. Anderson's lab. So it's clearly a multi uh, multidisciplinary uh, team approach with uh, many different labs working uh, together in synergy. And it sounded like from reading a paper that I read that you were um you were writing it you your work may have studied it in liver cancer also is that correct? Um uh, yes so as i mentioned we uh we we shared the compound with different investigators and uh, including uh, uh, Dr. Brian Carr, who at the time was at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, they studied it against liver cancer, and uh, indeed it showed activity against liver cancer, um, in, you know, in a rat model of liver cancer. We've, again, through our work and work of collaborators, both at different institutions in the United States and in Germany, so JSK has shown activity, as we mentioned, in myeloma, in AML, in liver cancer, but also in lung cancer, kidney cancer, uh, brain tumors, Ewing sarcoma, which is a devastating pediatric tumor mainly, and then prostate cancer. So it has a broad spectrum of activity uh, against uh, multiple different cancers. And I know it sounded like it had something to do with angiogenesis, and many patients may not know what that is. But do you want to describe maybe how how it works and how it kills the cancerous cells, and then as part of that, describe how it relates to angiogenesis? Sure. So um, angiogenesis is uh, is a normal phenomenon that uh, we all we all have in our bodies, and that's uh, the the phenomenon by which we develop uh, uh, blood vessels to you know to feed ourselves to feed our organs to heal wounds uh, all that type of things and as uh, any cancer cell cancer cells uh, needs essentially access to the blood supply in order to survive and feed itself uh, uh, Cancer cells stimulate angiogenesis. They kind of tap into the body circulatory system to develop their own blood supply in a very pernicious way, frankly, just like cancer is. And um, using uh, a lot of the normal molecules that uh, normally, for example, would help us heal a wound, but in in the case of a of a cancer would essentially help feed the tumor and in fact if a cancer cell or a small population of cancer cells does not have access to 
the vasculature to the uh, circulatory system, it would never grow to become a cancer. So uh, a lot of research has gone on over the past several years to develop uh, drugs that could inhibit uh, angiogenesis. And some of the drugs that have been developed for myeloma work at least in part by inhibiting angiogenesis. Uh, these include, uh, for instance, thalidomide and linalidomide. Um, as far as uh, JSK is concerned, um, again, just because it's a nitric oxide delivery drug, it has multiple different targets, multiple different effects including direct cytotoxic effects to the tumor. So by going into the cancer cell and releasing uh, you know, toxic amounts of nitric oxide, it affects multiple different pathways inside the cells. Uh, but also, as part of the work we've done with, uh, with Dr. Anderson's group and with the team of investigators at the NCI, we were able to show that JSK inhibits angiogenesis, so inhibits the development of vessels uh, both in vitro, so in basically quote-unquote test tube uh, assays, but also in vivo, and the in vivo work again was done in the Anderson lab where they implanted mice with, uh, with multiple myeloma cells and uh, they showed uh, that if you treat the mice with JSK, uh, you could shrink the myeloma cells and, and you know, uh, allow the mice to live longer. But when uh, when they got the tumors out and the tumors were stained for markers of angiogenesis, so checking for angiogenesis under the microscope. Uh, <clears throat> It was uh, uh, it was evident that JSK had also inhibited the growth of vessels into the tumors. So it it it's very exciting because we have uh, a drug that uh, is directly toxic to the tumor cells by multiple different mechanisms, but it also inhibits uh, <clears throat> uh, the tumors from uh, developing their own blood supply and. Uh, there's some very recent uh, study from an Italian group that suggests that it could uh, potentially work also through an immune-mediated mechanism, and maybe we can talk about this, uh, you know, later in the show. Oh, sure. And um, it, are you talking about that it might affect the bone marrow microenvironment in an additional way, or that's some other way? No, so well, okay. So we better the, talk about it now because <laughs> I might. Okay, forget. we'll talk about it now. So what? Uh, okay. What that Italian group showed, uh, and this was published just last year. What they showed is that if you treat myeloma cells uh, with uh, nitric oxide donors, so drugs that deliver nitric oxide including JSK, so they tested two NO donors, and one of them was JSK. What they showed is that uh, uh, by treating the myeloma cells <coughs> with JSK, you stimulate them to express uh, uh, a, a, prote a protein called CD155 on their surface. And by doing so, they stimulate 
normal immune cells to kind of get angry and attack them. So uh, these cells are called NK cells, so natural killer cells. And um, and so uh, so that's uh, again an additional mechanism by which uh, uh, JSK could be uh, working in vivo. And the reason I was saying maybe later in the show because we may be talking about potential synergies with other drugs, but uh, uh, oh, one yeah, of the we new will talk about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll talk about it when once we get there, and uh, so. That's what I want. So now, as far as the bone marrow microenvironment is concerned, one thing that uh, that the, the the Anderson group at Dana Farber showed is again multiple myeloma cells use the bone marrow environment to their advantage. Just you know, the bone marrow, normal bone marrow stromal cells, kind of support cells in the bone marrow. They use them to their advantage, and what uh, what the Anderson group showed is that if JSK actually um, breaks that synergy that the myeloma cells have with the normal bone marrow environment, so it's again it's yet another potential mechanism where JSK um, could sensitize the multiple myeloma cells to. Um, you know, to other drugs in vivo by by just inhibiting <coughs> the uh, the advantage that myeloma cells have when they are close to normal uh, bone marrow uh, stromal cells. Well, to me, it sounds like you're doing those four specific things. So it's killing the tumor cells directly, and then it's preventing kind of a blood vessel system from growing and feeding itself. Then it's stimulating the cells to put a target on top so the natural immune system NK cells can kill them. And then it's preventing the bone marrow environment from um, being able to kind of facilitate its growth. So that's a lot of different ways to target the myeloma, in my opinion. Yeah, that, and that's that's what I find, you know, exciting about this, uh, this agent is that uh, there are a lot of, Again, different molecular targets that could uh, potentially work in synergy in vivo, so in the environment of the tumor, that uh, again could make it uh, a very potent drug, and especially if it can be combined also with uh, with other active agents. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the show where you said nitric oxide by itself would be dangerous if you just gave it directly. So you went through a whole process to do um, the chemistry to find a delivery device, basically, to get to the cancerous cells only. How does that work? And then what other side effects, or does it impact normal cells at all, or are there any side effects that you've seen? Yeah, so that that these are all great questions. Uh, so... Yeah, if you if you and there are drugs that are available that you could uh you know these are called like like nitrates that you could use for uh blood pressure control for example because nitric oxide uh dilates blood vessels. So if you give a drug like this, uh you will induce a drop in the blood pressure. And and there are other potential toxicities of nitric oxide. 
But the blood pressure is the most obvious one just because of the normal physiologic effects of nitric oxide. And so the the way that these drugs were designed by by our you know chemistry colleagues is that they do not release a lot of nitric oxide spontaneously. So if you put them in a solution, they you know there is some slow, very slow release, but it's really not very efficient. However, uh, they could react and break off when uh, they react with uh, particularly a molecule called glutathione uh, and then break off and release nitric oxide. Um, now, uh, there are a fam there is a family of enzymes called the glutathione as transferases which can actually catalyze or stimulate that reaction. And uh, uh, a lot of different cancer cells actually have high levels of glutathione as transferase in them because they use the GSTs uh, to resist the effect of, uh, of chemotherapy. So that was the idea, is to, to have a reaction that's catalyzed by an enzyme uh, that is found at high levels in the in the tumor cells. Um, we're not getting 100% selective delivery. I cannot say that into the tumor cells, but uh, I think we are getting enough delivery into the tumor cells to have an effect uh, in vitro and uh, and in vivo. Um, now, as far as toxicity is concerned. Um, Using different in vitro assays, so far, uh, the every time a group of investigators looked at the normal counterpart of a tumor cell, there was no obvious toxicity. And to go back to the myeloma work, Dr. Anderson, uh, you know, they looked at normal peripheral blood cells, and it didn't seem that JSK uh, was toxic to normal peripheral blood cells, at least not the same doses that it was toxic against myeloma cells. We conducted experiments here um, uh, with one of my bone marrow transplant colleagues, uh, Dr. Tai Kao, uh, where we did transplant experiments on mice and used stem cells that uh, had been treated with JSK, and the mice that received the stem cells that were treated with JSK uh, fared just as well as the ones that received unmanipulated stem cells. So, uh, hmm. so far, it doesn't seem, based on the data we have so far, that we have a lot of toxicity against normal, uh, uh, normal uh, cells. Now, I mentioned the blood pressure issue and uh, that could be a problem with this uh, with this agent because it's a nitric oxide releasing agent. Um, however, we have uh, developed a formulation, so uh, essentially a means of dissolving the drug to be able to administer it, uh, you know, clinically. And the uh, recent uh, study we did. Um, to look at toxicity in, in dogs, it seems that with that formulation, the way we administer, the way we develop to 
to administer the drug, it seems that uh, um, based on the measurements that uh, the contractor did, that we did not see a drop in blood pressure. So with the way we're able to give the drug now, and it, it, it's, a, it's a two-hour infusion, um, the last set of, of measurements that we've had uh it doesn't seem to be uh dropping the blood pressure in any significant fashion uh i should say in that same study that was done the the drug was actually uh, very well tolerated by by the dogs who received it you know every day for 7 days kind of a schedule that potentially could be used to you know to treat a patient uh, basically so it seems mm-hmm. to be well treated, but uh, obviously we need to do the full set of, you know, preclinical toxicology studies, and then um, and then as is required is to do the initial phase one clinical trials to have a good idea of the toxicity profile of the agent. Mm-hmm. And I have several questions about that whole process. But first, you know, one of the patients that was with me at ASH, Pat Killingsworth, he just kind of observed there are a lot of these new drugs out and available, which is really exciting for myeloma patients. But a big issue is drug resistance. So we have lots of choices now, more than we ever did before, but patients are still becoming drug resistant. So um, as I understand it, you've been trying to test this in drug-resistant myeloma cells. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, and again, I go back to the work that was done by, you know, Ken Anderson's group, and uh, as part of their work, they uh, they studied JSK against a panel of sensitive and resistant uh, myeloma cells, and uh, and the drug actually showed activity against all of them, including, you know, uh, drug-resistant cell lines. They also tested it against uh, myeloma cells that were isolated from patients, not not cell lines that have been maintained in the lab, and it showed activity in, uh, uh, you know, in, in those cells that were directly taken from patients. Uh, we have tried in the lab several years ago to make a leukemia cell line uh, resistant to JSK. So basically there are some means where you can try to culture cells with a drug at low concentrations and take those surviving cells and culture them again and so forth until you isolate uh, a population of cells that is resistant to uh, to the JSK and or any drug you could that, do that with. Uh, we have not been able to make a, a totally resistant cell line. Now, again, we I cannot say that there will be absolutely no resistance uh, if you know once the drug is in the clinic. But so far, it looks that it's pretty potent, and at least theoretically, uh, you could argue that. Uh, the drug hits so many different targets that uh, it would be difficult for uh, tumor cells to develop 
uh, or tumor cell population to develop resistance to the drug. But again, this is all speculative. Uh, we will not know that uh, until you know a lot more work is done, especially until the drug gets uh, gets into the clinic. Mm-hmm. And with work you're doing in leukemia and also multiple myeloma, does it look like it works better for a specific kind of blood cancer, or you're seeing results that are about the same for each one? Uh, I don't think that it is more... I, I can't say that myeloma is more or less sensitive than AML cells, Uh I think both uh, both cancers are equally well. I think both cancers are sensitive to uh, uh, you know to the drug, and in fact, uh, the FDA has granted us orphan drug designation for both AML and multiple myeloma. And uh, I can't say that one tumor is more sensitive than the other. Um, we would certainly want to develop it for uh for both AML and myeloma um, i think that would be that would be ideal and as i mentioned we have you know data from different labs showing activity in a multitude of different solid tumors so <clears throat> beyond the hematologic malignancies i think there is great potential there as well Okay, now earlier you kind of referred to this, that that we would talk about how this drug could potentially work with other multiple myeloma drugs, and I think bortezomib is one of those drugs. Do you want to talk about why that might work well with Velcade and um, any other existing drug? Yeah, so we, again, this is the work that was done by Ken Anderson, and what they showed is that there is, Synergy with uh, with bortezomib with Velcade, and uh, mechanistically, I don't think we know how this synergy occurs. But uh, um, uh, Velcade or this class of drugs, uh, you know, are inhibitors of this proteasome pathway, which uh, also uh, is uh, very important or is directly related uh, in a way to the NF-kappa-B pathway. So these are two uh, molecular pathways. And we know that nitric oxide uh, actually is, um, is, is, uh, can be inhibitory to the NF-kappa-B pathway. And so there's potential for synergy there, uh, at least theoretically, where you're hitting the same pathway by two different angles. Um, This is theoretical. We don't have any data to prove that. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the leukemia world, we showed in my lab that there is synergy with cytarabine, which is one of the main agents uh, that are used for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. Another really exciting potential, and this is just based on the most recent <coughs> approvals and data is uh, the one of the new agents that was approved uh, last year, uh, elotuzumab, Implicity, uh, you know, is an antibody that targets this molecule called SLAMF7. And uh, uh, one of the 
mechanisms by which this antibody works is by stimulating natural killer cells to attack the myeloma cells. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, the group of Italian investigators showed that uh, JSK stimulates the myeloma cells to kind of express a target for NK cells. So you could come up with an idea here of, uh, you know, potentially um, doing some synergy studies between the the two agents. Mm-hmm. Using elotizumab with JSK. Uh, yes. You're saying. Well, that would be exciting. I think the more that we can use all these newly approved drugs, the better. <laughs> yeah, be yeah. Fantastic. Um, does it have an impact on any particular myeloma type that you've seen? I know that we've talked about myeloma being different kinds. So people have different um, genetic features in their myeloma. Is Have you noticed any difference between these uh, different types of myeloma, like high-risk myeloma or standard or low-risk myeloma? Uh, that we don't know. Uh, we We don't know whether... You know, different subtypes of uh, of myeloma would uh, be differentially sensitive. Uh, more recently, we, you know, my colleague here at Huntsman, Tim Lutkins from, uh, you know, the myeloma group, uh, screened JSK against a panel of uh, different myeloma cells that have different uh, features. Um, and... Uh, the the drug was active against uh, all of them, uh, but just like I said before, we we really need to get uh, more work done and certainly get into uh, you know clinical uh, trials to be able to definitively identify uh, subgroups of uh, of myelomas that may be more or less sensitive to the drug. Mhm. And you talked about how it might flag the CD um 150 is it 155? Yeah. So the NK cells can kind of go and attack those. Is there any other effect that you've seen on the immune system because I know when they talk about myeloma drugs some of the drugs depress the immune system like dexamethasone and some enhance it like Revlimid. So is there is there any if maybe you just need to do more studies on it before you know this, but have you seen any other effect on the immune system besides that flagging, which is wonderful? Right. Uh, we uh, we don't know, so we have not done any, you know, formal immunologic studies on uh, using the drug. Uh, we, uh, as I mentioned, we had done. <clears throat> This uh, transplant experiment in uh, in mice using uh, you know a transplant model and it did not seem to compromise <coughs> uh, you know bone marrow stem cells uh, which obviously end up uh, producing uh, immune cells. Now, uh, does it have any other effects on the? immune system beyond just production of uh, of of immune active cells that we don't know we we have not done any any studies that would look at immune function uh with with this agent 
Okay. And um, you kind of alluded to the different steps in the process. Maybe you want to walk us through um, how uh, how you start from a discovery of an idea in the lab and then the steps that you have to take. And I think you're kind of in an unusual position to do this because many doctors are seeing patients, which you do, and are doing research, which you're doing as well. And then they kind of hand it off to a company to take it over and have it become a, a real product. But you're working on both aspects of that. So maybe you can give us an idea of how that works. Uh, sure. I mean, I can kind of give you my view of it, basically, which may not be everybody's view. But uh, it, it's a, I think it's a pretty standard orthodox approach. Um, the so obviously so you get an idea there's a target that you want to target and so the chemists then design the a drug and there are different ways of coming up with a design uh, some sometimes or what's being done a lot these days is let's say there's a protein that you want to target people do so-called virtual screens, so basically using computer software to identify candidate uh, designs. But but once you have this candidate design, whichever way you got into it, whether it's just by you know brain power or computer power, uh, you need to uh, show its efficacy in vitro. So this is where tumor cells are cultured. Uh, you know, in dishes and so forth, you want to show that uh, it the, the the agent or, or that family of agents is capable of killing tumor cells in vitro. And very importantly, you want to show that uh, it can kill tumor cells at concentrations or at amounts that are not <clears throat> exceedingly high. I mean, theoretically, you put you can put anything in a culture. If you put enough of it, you can kill tumor cells. But if the amounts it takes to kill a tumor cell in vitro are uh, exceedingly high, then this is going to be too toxic to be developed into the clinic. So you, you try to identify mm -hmm. the most efficient uh, agent that is the most lethal to, to the tumor cells at the lowest concentration. And... Uh, Sometimes there's some back and forth there between uh, the chemistry and the biology where you go back to the chemist and they make some modification to the molecule to make it more active and so forth. But once you've identified your lead, so-called lead drug, uh, you uh, then do the, the studies in vivo and uh, depending on what tumor you're targeting, you can set up different uh, in vivo models to show that the drug potentially works uh, in vivo. Most of the models use mice, actually. And so if things look good at that point, then uh, that's when you know that you have something that could potentially make it to the clinic. Um, and there you have, you have two very important things that need to be the, uh, you know, developed. And it it's not a one-person show. This is where you get these. You need expertise from multiple different uh, disciplines. Uh, one is <coughs> your uh, drug needs to be 
so-called scalable. So you need to be able to produce it in large enough quantities to be able to do uh, not just animal work, but ultimately, um, you know, get it into large enough quantities to, to treat patients. And a lot of times you have exciting molecules, but they're so difficult to make, so difficult to synthesize that, uh, you know, that it's never going to be practical to be able to produce enough of them, and, and enough quantities to, you know, get it into the clinic. So that becomes a lab reagent rather than a real drug. Uh, fortunately, mm -hmm. with SK, we have, again, I go back to the genius uh, of the chemist that uh, that made the drug, you know, Kiefer and Saavedra and their colleagues. Uh, the drug is actually uh, very scalable, so we can it can be produced in, in large quantities. Uh, another hurdle is what's called formulation. Uh, if you have uh, a powder in a tube in the freezer in the lab, that doesn't mean that you can administer it to a patient. So you need to find a way to basically <coughs> package it uh, so you could give it in some form to a patient, whether oral or intravenous, etc. And for the intravenous route, uh, you need to be able to dissolve it in in some solution that would be actually uh, itself acceptable, you know, to be used in a, in a, in a patient. Um, so for JSK, that has been that was one of the big challenges that we've had with the drug is that it's uh, it uh, it is very difficult to to dissolve in in uh, in water solutions like saline and so forth. Uh, but again, the, one of the major or the major efforts in my lab over the last few years has been to try to develop a formulation for the drug, and <clears throat> I think we have something now that works uh, using nanoparticles. So once you have formulation and you have scale up, then uh, you can move forward and do what's called the pre-IND uh, studies. So IND means investigation of new drugs. So that's uh, basically the permission you get from uh, the Food and Drug Administration to take the drug into a clinical trial. So <clears throat> to get that permission, you need to do the so-called pre-IND studies, which are uh, mainly toxicology studies um, in, um, in in animals. The most Common species that are used, depending on the drug, but most commonly it's it's usually rats and dogs, and that allows you to have an idea on the pharmacology of the drug, on the toxicology of the drug. So how much can you uh, push the dose, etc. And so based on these studies, you you know there are means to uh, uh, to deduce. A you know, a potentially safe dose to use <coughs> for first in human studies. So you put that whole package together, and uh, and then you present it to the FDA, and um, if the FDA grants you permission to proceed with clinical trials, then uh, you go ahead and you start with what's called phase one clinical trials, which uh, are the initial first in human studies, and um, and there again, the classic way of doing it is you start at a low dose and then 
you escalate the dose in groups of patients uh, until you identify those that uh, is is uh, is tolerated. And and these initial phase one studies uh, again give you also an idea on the pharmacology of the drug, how does it get uh, handled by the body, and sometimes you get some early clues about activity. And once you have that, then you can you have identified a dose, then you can move forward to what's called phase two studies, where you really get a really good idea about the efficacy of the drug. And you know, the ultimate would be what's called a randomized phase three trial, where you compare your drug or your drug in combination with something with uh, what would be the standard of care at that point. So it's a, it's a lengthy mm-hmm. process, and the further down the road you get, the more expensive it gets, and, uh, you know, there's potential for failure every step of the way. And uh, and so, um, I mean, with JSK, we are now at the pre-IND phase. So what we need to do is precisely to do these so-called GLP studies in uh, in animals to very to characterize very well its toxicity profile and be able to devise uh, or derive a dose that we could use to start initial phase 1 phase 1 trials uh, so uh, we are, we're at the stage where we need to do this whole package of toxicology studies before we would go to the FDA uh, to to get permission to do clinical trials. Now, where does a startup company come into play? Um, as as you mentioned, uh, Jenny, uh, you know, one scenario would be to develop the drug and license it to a company and have it do everything until you get it into the clinic. Uh, this this would be ideal, frankly. <laughs> uh, the problem is uh, most companies uh, in general want to see uh, some initial uh, clinical uh, results before they take on a new a new agent. And so in a way you're on your own to get it all the way to a phase one. At least most companies at least would want to see the toxicology package before moving forward. And so, uh, you you know, in our particular case, we've received, you know, a lot of support from, uh, from you know, from the government, you know, NIH grants, etc. but it gets to a point where um, uh, you cannot proceed further just with academic grants, kind of at the level of an academic lab like mine. And so that's when you need a lot more resources to to move forward. Um, And as I mentioned, established companies like to see kind of results beyond where we are before they take on a new product. And so that's where, uh, you know, Founding a startup company comes into play because that allows you to get resources to be able to develop uh, the agent and bringing to early clinical development. And resources, you know, when you have a, um, a company, an entity, 
you can raise money potentially from the private sector with you know different sources there or and or uh, from uh, from the government through different grant mechanisms that are uh, awarded to companies and that's what we've been doing basically so we've founded this company JSK Therapeutics and we have been able to raise money both from uh, you know private venture private venture uh, you know angel funds and also we've received grants from the the government, uh, but we are at a stage where um, we really need to get more resources to be able to complete that uh, toxicology package and get into the clinic. Mm-hmm. And the whole process is not an easy process. I mean, when you talk about even getting the NIH grants, that's very challenging. So, it you know, and nowadays, 1 in 12 grant requests are getting funded. So when we I did an interview when I very first started this series with Craig Cruz, who was the maker uh, inventor of carfilzomib, and he said the same thing that you did. He just said it's a very long process and you have to kind of make this jump to show your results before it gets picked up and then it can be very very exciting after that. But um you know, it's it's not easy. It's kind of like you know, we live in the startup world in our family and and see that all the time. It's a challenge to make that jump and to keep it going. So it sounds so exciting what you're working on and um, and very, very hopeful for myeloma patients. Uh yeah, I mean we're we're definitely very excited about uh about about this molecule what I like about it is that uh the work was conducted not just in my lab but by multiple different labs uh, at different institutions working independently um and uh you know so the results I think have been uh, have been you know very solid by you know you know, great investigators, you know, whether it's uh, Ken Anderson, uh, the NCI team, uh, had a collaboration with uh, with a team of German scientists who did the brain tumor work. Um, so it, it's, in a way, it's been validated by different groups that have worked independently. And uh, we just need to cross this, I mean, people sometimes call it the valley of death for drug development uh just because that's what dr cruz called it too <laughs> yeah it's true i mean it's, yeah and it, it's like you want to cross that desert but you want to make sure that you have a vehicle that can get you through and enough water to survive and that, that's why, that's mm-hmm. where uh, absolutely yeah yeah so, but we're well, we're hopeful Um, well, we're, I want to be able to make sure that people have an opportunity to ask questions if they have um, specific questions. So let me do that first, and then I have another question for you before we finish. But if you have a question for Dr. Shami, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. 
And okay, caller at 889-4902. Go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, Dr. Shami. Thank you for for your time and taking my call. I I just uh, would like to know what does it mean if you have an orphan drug designation? Um, yes. So as as you know, when when a drug gets on the market, um, it uh, it has to have some so-called intellectual property protection, so that the, the company that is commercializing the drug uh, is able to to do so with some protection for a certain period of time. Uh, orphan drug designation uh, is uh, a status that is given to, to agents that are developed for diseases that... Uh, do not meet a certain criterion of um, of incidence, so, so diseases that are considered to be uh, somewhat rare diseases. So if you if you get orphan drug designation for a, for a certain disease that is that falls into that criterion of an orphan disease, then uh, the drug has some additional uh, protection, so you have <clears throat> several years uh, of exclusivity that can come uh, beyond the, you know, what would initially be allowed from uh, from the initial patent for that drug. So that that's a way to to provide an incentive uh, to to companies or investors, uh, you know. To, to support the development of, of drugs for diseases that uh, do not have a huge market share. Okay, thank you. Thanks for for responding that. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much for your question. And does that speed it does it speed it up as well or just give that protection? Uh it it's not a status that speeds up approval. It's mainly a status that provides protection. Now there are other mechanisms that uh, that can potentially speed up approval, but uh, yeah, that that that's a totally different uh, subject, basically. Okay. Okay, if we have any other callers, just please please, please press 1 on your keypad. Um, I will ask my final question is, how soon could this come to the clinic? Well, I mean, based on, uh, I, I don't know how long it takes for the toxicology to... Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would like this to come to the clinic yesterday, obviously. I mean, this right. is... Such an area of need. Uh, any of those cancers we mentioned is an area of need. Uh, if we have all the resources we would need to do the toxicology package, uh, I think that could be accomplished in about a year's time. And then you put that uh, filing together. Uh, you know that all this information together into what's called an IND application and then you go to the FDA so if you know today January 14th if we started today and we had all the resources we need um, 
we could potentially complete the tax package in about a year's time, uh, and barring any complications or any unforeseen problems with the toxicology, then go to the FDA and get permission, maybe hopefully get into an initial clinical trial in, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months from today. So that's if we have, you know, the resources we need. The problem is we need to to raise those those uh, resources. That's been um, that's been the challenge at this point. Mhm. Oh, I totally understand, and it's um, such a frustrating frustrating thing to try to have such a great idea and then be, you know, feel like you're getting held up from getting it into the clinic where you want it to be treating patients. Um, we have one more question. It's 2046956. Go ahead with your question. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I am a Huntsman patient and actually was just released from the hospital a couple of weeks ago. I um, just endured my third stem cell transplant. I was diagnosed four years ago. And it was brutal. And so my question is, do you think that stem cell transplants may at some point become a thing of the past that we might have better options that we just don't even have to think about this as part of our treatment plan? Uh, I mean, that would certainly be the hope uh, that at some point we would not be using brutal treatment, and you're absolutely right. There's uh, nothing gentle about uh, a transplant. Uh, if we, just, just to give you kind of a parallel uh, a disease, uh, like chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. I mean, if you went back uh, maybe 15 years ago uh, or a little bit longer than that, um, the, we used to try to transplant every CML patient if we could. I mean, if the patient was <clears throat> young and healthy enough, that was the treatment to do. And nowadays, we hardly ever do transplants on these patients because over the past, you know, 15 years, such outstanding drugs have been developed uh, for CML. And, I mean, the dream obviously would be to have drugs like this for every single cancer uh, that, that we could encounter. So we can only hope. That is, you're hoping, do you have, like, if you haven't looked into a crystal ball and give us an answer, would you have a date for a year? <laughs> How you think we are? <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I did. I I wish I did. I, I mean, yeah, I, I I have a very personal stake in myeloma. My my own dad actually passed away of myeloma, so uh, oh, wow. I I wish, as I said, I wish we were there. Uh, but clearly, the myeloma world has made you know, huge strides over the past, uh, you know, 15 years, thanks to a lot of these great investigators like Ken Anderson and 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 and, and all the all those investigators that have uh, developed these drugs. So. Okay, so. I just look forward to a future where I never have to think transplant again as ever. <laughs> so thank you keep making hard for us. <laughs> thank you. Please, thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Well, Dr. Shami, I think this is just a perfect example of, um, you know, when 
patients might want to step in and, and try to get involved as well. Because sometimes I think we think about it that we hope somebody else is going to be funding different areas of research. And we just hope that either the NIH is going to do it or private companies are going to do it. And that's one of the reasons that we started the Myeloma Crowd and the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative is because um, not all good ideas are getting funded. And if we want a cure at a faster pace, patients themselves might decide that they can take it upon themselves and help do something about it. So I would just suggest, and I know sometimes patients don't even know that they can do this, but they can donate directly to different investigators or different labs within a hospital. Instead of just donating to the hospital generally, they can donate to a particular lab. So I guess I would just say um, leave patients with that thought. And uh, thank you so much for participating on the show today. I think what you're working on is so very exciting and uh, just a wonderful opportunity for patients to have a treatment that um, could work with existing drugs and could be uh, quite effective with very low toxicity. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. I think that you're doing great work with myeloma crowd. You know, advocacy is is very very important. And as you mentioned, the limiting factor is not ideas; it's uh, it's resources. And um, and we're hopeful we'll get there. Yes, absolutely. Well, we wish you the very best in continuing your great work, and um, and hope that we can help you in some way. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. Uh, We know that patients can get involved to learn more about their own disease and even help accelerate a cure. And we invite you to join us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.